Warning. Uh, our scripture text comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, it'll be up on the screen. I'm going to do something just slightly different. There's two different words used that are translated Lord here in this text. The first one that we see is Adonai, which refers to God's position as Lord. Lord or master is what that word means. And uh, it's used, again, to ascribe God his position or his title. The second word that you see in all caps is Yahweh. That's the personal name, the word that was so sacred that the Jews refused to pronounce it, and they just used the four-letter abbreviation. So I'm going to be replacing those words with the Hebrew words as we read through this to highlight the differences that the writer of Isaiah is is pointing out here. So read with me from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of Adonai saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, Adonai? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And Yahweh removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Reach on a holy God to represent a mighty word to send forth. And we better pray that God would enable us to speak it and hear it. So join me in prayer. God, your prophet Isaiah says, a voice says cry. And what's, I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God, we 
We are like grass, the flowers of the field. Our weakness is evident. We will fade. We will become part of the dirt. We do not have the power to make your word go forth, but your prophet Isaiah again says, the word of the Lord will accomplish what it is sent out to do. So we ask you, God, will you speak through this weak servant? And will you bring to life this room full of your servants? Don't let us be like Isaiah's hearers who had eyes but could not see and ears and could not hear and hearts that could not turn to you. Send your spirit on this place that your glory would be on display. Your robe of majesty would fill this place and fill our hearts. And every one of us would stand at the end and say, here I am. Send me. Do this work. For the glory of your risen son, King Jesus. Amen. (sighs) Many years ago when I was applying for seminary, God had to humble me quite a bit before he could let me receive this training. So when I stand before you, I could be a better servant, pastor. I submitted my application to Bethlehem College and Seminary thinking I am just the right guy that they're looking for. I had a real good shot at getting into this exclusive and really difficult program. I had a lot of life experience. I volunteered for many leadership positions for years at my church. God has given me a sharp intellect, I think, to to engage in this difficult studying And I avoided entanglements with any serious sin. And so when I had my first interview with the faculty, he affirmed my sense of pride when he told me that I am just the type of student they're looking for. He had all but assured me that I was going to be accepted into their program. And so I prepared my family. We started getting our house ready to sell. We were telling people we were on our way out. And we were quite nervous, but really excited for this new adventure because our family for a few years had gone through some really difficult things and we were tired and we were done and we wanted out. And we felt like God was finally calling us out of this slew of despond into a new adventure. I just had one more interview to finalize the the whole process and then we would be on our way. And then the day came when I thought, I'm just waiting by my phone for the the phone call to tell me that I finally had been accepted, put the house on the market. I heard nothing. And then a few days passed. What's going on? I'm getting a little nervous. And I call up the the administrator and said, hey, uh, what's going on here? I thought, I was going to hear by now, oh, oh, maybe check the mail today. You should have gotten your letter today. Well, that's not good news if they just sent a letter and didn't call me. And so I check the mail and sure enough, I received a letter opening saying, thank you for your application. We had many very high quality candidates, applicants who more than we've ever had. And then the next word that you see on every 
response to an application. Unfortunately. You don't even need to read anything after that. You know, I didn't get it. I was rejected. My heart sunk. I felt so sure we were called to this. People all around us affirming the call. My heart wanted it so bad. There was the open door right in front of me. I had already prepared my family for leaving and now we felt stuck. We were all in on this thing and we were stuck. Lost. No excitement, no hope, no direction. What we thought was a clear calling from God was suddenly gone. And I called my first interviewer and said, you said. And he said, you know what? As much as I thought you were the perfect fit for our program, your second interview was equally bad. And he was convinced you are not ready for seminary. And he convinced the whole committee to not have you in. Ouch. That really hurt. And he said, you know what? Instead of wallowing in self-pity as a victim and getting bitter at this person, I don't even remember who did that second interview. Praise God. Why don't you simply ask God to show you what he wants you to take away from this and refocus your heart on him to guide you? Man, these... Good words, wise words, but hard to hear. Little did I know, even though I should have because I didn't read to the end of the letter, that I was the first in line on a waiting list. So if someone else decided to go somewhere to a different school, that I was the first one to get in. If I would have just read the letter, I would have seen that. But sure enough, a couple of weeks later, I got the call. You're in. Oh, thank God. He did call me to embark on this journey, but he wanted me to learn a valuable lesson. If I'm going to make it through this hard season of life, it's not going to be because of my intellect, because of my strategic planning, my wisdom, the strength of my resolve, but because God is merciful. And so I was humbled to go to school to learn and to be prepared For greater service to God's people as a man always in need of God's grace. This is the purpose of the book of Isaiah. Israel too thought they were pretty clever. They thought they were strong enough to care for themselves. They were secure being seeds, offspring, children of Abraham. They were the ones blessed to receive the covenant from God on the mountain. They were called to be God's servants to represent him as his holy ones before the nations. But the truth is they were a mess. Blind and deaf to the reality of their desperate condition. With neighboring nations surrounding them right at their doorstep ready to destroy them. They needed rescue from their peril. But first they had to be stripped of every bit of self-reliance. So they could welcome God's rescue. They had to prepare the way in their own lives for the coming suffering servant king. And so do we as well. That is our main idea today. Prepare the way in your life for the suffering servant king. If you want to experience God's rescue, enjoy his full blessing, you must be prepared. 
I don't say this lightly. You know, I don't say it lightly. You must be prepared for all the idols, all the distractions, all of the confidence you have in yourself to be stripped away. And then you will rejoice when the king takes the throne in your life. The book of Isaiah has two major parts that emphasize these themes of judgment and hope. Complementary themes that are held together by God's good plan for his people. The theme of judgment first gets a lot of weight in the first 39 chapters. When God warns his people of the coming refining judgment. Yes, there's threads of hope throughout this heavy section. But Isaiah warns Israel that God's just punishment for sin is just around the corner. Then the weight of this message takes a dramatic turn in chapters 40 to 66, where Isaiah gives hope of God's future guaranteed restoration. He promises he's going to send a new servant. He's going to send a king who will bear their judgment, restore their identity as God's servants, and lead them to such a joy and peace-filled new creation They can't even begin to imagine what it's going to be like. And Isaiah's calling in chapter 6 is paradigmatic of God's entire message for Israel. Meaning his life is a picture. His calling is a picture for what all of Israel is about to experience. So we're just going to dwell in chapter 6 for a little bit. And see how that is a picture for us to follow. Isaiah begins in... Chapter 6, his vision of heaven, which Sean beautifully read for us, by telling them when it happened. He said, in the year King Uzziah died. That makes a lot of sense to us, right? In chapter 1, we read that all of this prophecy, everything that Isaiah received and is giving to Israel, happened during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, your favorite Bible characters. You can read about them in 2 Kings 15 through 20, parts you probably skip over too. If you read through those, you find that Uzziah was one of the kings who actually had a positive re- reputation. When you read through First and Second Kings, you hear just a lot of, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You're like, okay, I get it. All these kings are terrible. Well, not Uzziah. He was okay. He ruled with relative righteousness, peace, security, prosperity for 50 years, longer than any of the other kings up to his time. During his 50 years in the northern kingdom, there were five different kings as they battled each other for significance. And all around the region, nations fighting against each other, trying to one-up one another and take control of everything, all of them threatening the existence of Israel. But the people of Judah, for 50 years, experienced relative stability until Uzziah died. For the first time in many people's lifetimes, they're wondering, do we have a future? What's this world going to look like for my kids? Anyone asking that question lately? What's this country going to look like? For my kids when they grow up. And my grandkids. When they're wondering. Will Jotham continue Uzziah's policies? 
And at the same time, they're starting to hear whispers of this great and powerful northern kingdom called Assyria, growing in power, spreading quickly throughout the region, wiping out every city in its path. No mercy from them. Is Jerusalem strong enough to stand against them? And these first 39 chapters reveal the answer to their fears is God's refining judgment. Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 represents that faithful Israelite who's wondering, is God going to protect us? What king is here to protect us? And suddenly he's transported into the heavenly dwelling place of God. He sees God sitting on his throne, blinded by the light of his glory. And the immediate message to all the people listening, Uzziah died, God is on the throne. It's that no matter who's on the throne in Jerusalem, who's on the throne in Assyria, God is on his throne over all the earth. Just as the song says, Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. It's a truth we need to remind ourselves every election season, right? When, when our country somehow brings to leadership more rulers who lead us further down the path of ruin, God is in control. He is on the throne. It's an important truth. But this truth by itself is not good news for us. Because this king who sits on this heavenly throne is holy, holy, holy. He is high and lifted up. The train of his robe representing his splendor and his majesty fills the whole room. His character commands attention. Look at this God on his throne. The seraphim, meaning the flaming ones, they're bright and fiery. They're angels all around the throne. They have to cover their eyes even though they themselves are bright and splendor. They have to cover their eyes because of the beautiful, blinding glory of God's holiness. They sing of His holiness three times, a Hebrew way of emphasizing and, and exclaiming importance. And then they stop their song and God speaks. In verse 4, and when he speaks, the whole room shakes and engulfs everything in his consuming fire, telling us God's word is powerful. And suddenly Isaiah realizes he is in big trouble. Nobody can see God and live. And he just saw God. And he cries out in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I am about to be slaughtered by the holiness of God. Even though the God is on his throne over all of the chaos of the earth, Isaiah recognizes this is a problem for him and his people. The real problem is not the northern kingdom. It's not Moab or Edom or Egypt or Assyria. The king they should fear most is God himself. The real problem is that they have all been rebels to his will. 
They have not worshipped him, obeyed him, loved him as he commanded. Destruction by any of these nations would be far preferred than facing judgment from the Holy One of Israel. And then suddenly, something surprising happens. One of these flaming angels grabs a coal from the altar, brings it down to Isaiah and touches it to his lips to purify him, to take his guilt away, to atone for his sin. God doesn't destroy him. Yes, very painfully he purifies him. But mercifully he spares him. And then God calls him. On a mission. He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, he's not like, oh, pick me, pick me. Just uh, recognize the, the weight of this moment. Here I am. Send me. I'll go. What else can he say? His life was just spared for this very reason. Is he going to say no? Many people like to reference this calling of Isaiah when they feel called to go on missions. I'm going to be God's instrument to save the nations. They don't really read on to what this calling looks like. God says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God's not here to heal them with Isaiah. Isaiah's message is one of judgment. Talk about mission impossible. Isaiah's job is to preach to people who can't see truth. They can't hear warnings. They have hearts that are turned against God. Isaiah asks, God, uh, how long do I need to do this? I don't know if I can last. God responds in verses 11 to 13 until it's all burned to the ground. Until there's nothing left, until it all lies in waste, it becomes a desert, a wasteland. This is the judgment Israel deserves for their sin. Isaiah admitted, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm of a people of unclean lips. We deserve this punishment. And so much of the first half of this book of Isaiah, the first two-thirds of it, through chapter 39, is Isaiah the prophet being faithful to his mission calling out their injustice, calling out their oppression, calling out their unfaithfulness, calling out their idolatry and their pride. And when God brings these things to their attention through Isaiah, they go, oh no, we're in trouble. Let's go make an alliance with Egypt. Let's go have a conversation with Babylon. Let's show them our money. Bring them into the temple and see how rich we are so they won't want to conquer us. Fools. They're trusting in their own wisdom and their own wealth and their own power to avoid suffering. But God is on his throne and God is going to judge all the nations. So you want to align yourself with them? When I destroy them, you're going with them. But God is not done. 
There's still hope. There is a merciful, purifying atonement available for them as well. He had called them to be his servants, to represent him before the world, to draw the nations into his glorious presence. And he still intends to do that, but in a way that shows it is only his mighty power that accomplished it. The last thing he says in verse 13 is that this judgment will come until there is only a stump left. But this stump is a holy seed. Something tiny that looks dead, but a shoot is going to come out of it and grow into something mighty. Chapter 7 hints that a newborn baby is going to come who will bring the holy presence of God near Israel. Chapter 9 says that this child will grow to become a king. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's going to grow the kingdom of Israel and reign over the world in righteousness, justice, and peace forever. Chapter 11 says this stump is the, the root of Jesse. And a little shoot will come up to become a king who will rescue God's faithful people. And the king will restore them, just like Isaiah, to become his servants who say, send me into the nations. God's judgment will be thorough, but it's not without a purpose. God's refining trials are never without a purpose, brothers and sisters. a refining judgment to restore the earth and his people to their rightful roles as servants. And throughout these 39 chapters, the people are constantly asking themselves, facing this refinement, is God good? Will he take care of us? And the answer is yes, he will. But will you trust him through it? Or will you Go make alliances with the world. Run to the leaders of the world and trust their wisdom to preserve your comfort and safety. The purpose of his refining trials is to strip you from all your trust in those things so that you will put your confidence, your entire hope completely in the promise of his guaranteed restoration. We'll look at that in chapter 40. Turn your Bibles to chapter 40, and we'll just read the first five verses to see how these promises begin. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness. The wasteland, the desert that he just made. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That powerful word that shook the heavenly temple is about to do his saving work. A striking shift occurs here in chapter 40, all the way to the end of the book. 
Isaiah now is like transported into the future. He's looking far into the future after Jerusalem's destruction, after Israel's exile, and a future return when the city is rebuilt. God forgives his people and restores them to their representative role. And they live joyfully in a new creation. Isaiah writes, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's saying all that judgment, all that fiery refining was just to clear the way for God's special rescue. So it could be clear, God did this. That's good news. Wonderful news. Isaiah calls it good news quite often in these chapters. He uses the same word that's translated into Greek as euangelion or gospel. This is the gospel according to Isaiah. Isaiah is pointing us to new covenant hope that God is going to accomplish this good news for his people. And so in chapter 40, he uses the words good news to say the result will be all fear is removed. God will be exalted in ruling. There'll be great reward for all those who trust him. Eternal protection and guidance. Chapter 52, he speaks of this gospel, this good news again which brings peace with God, happiness, joy, celebration, salvation, comfort, redeemed Jerusalem, all the nations coming to Jerusalem to see God's glory. Chapter 60, more good news, this time for the poor, not just financially poor, but those who have no heart to try anymore. Sometimes the weight of the world just pushes down on you so heavy. What's the point of getting up? What's the point of going to work? I'm done. These people will finally have freedom, healing, favor, vengeance against their oppressors, joy, eternal life in righteousness. That sounds like amazing news. I don't know the Greek word for amazing news. We'll just stick with good news. How is God going to accomplish this amazing good news? At first, Isaiah introduces Israel as God's servants, but they failed. They didn't live up to their calling. They were the ones who were supposed to bring all of this good news into the world to the nations. But instead, they became like the nations, worshiping their gods. But then into this desert, into this wasteland, walks This anonymous figure whom God calls my servant. This servant, Isaiah says, perfectly represents God. He stands for justice and righteousness. He's meek and gentle. Someone who welcomes children onto his lap. But he's firm in his faith, his resolve to bring justice for his people. He's anointed by God's spirit to rule the earth. And lead others in following God's law. God honors him as he honors God. And he'll provide light to the world to guide the narrow path back into God's presence for Israel and all the nations. The servant is the seed. The stump. The shoot from the stump. He's the baby, the child that would grow up to be the king. The one who's to come and make everything right, yet... It wouldn't happen in the way they expected. They thought 
be someone riding in on a horse and just slaying everyone in his path. But Isaiah says it's different in chapter 52. Isaiah says that this great news of this servant king is that he's going to die. Yes, he'll be lifted high. He'll be lifted high in front of everyone's eyes to mock and beat and be rejected. He'll be beaten so badly that his blood will sprinkle the nations. He'll be a man of sorrows rejected by the world. People would hide their faces because he'll look so ugly, so shameful, as though he was smitten by God himself. But this is good news. Some people might call this day Good Friday because Isaiah writes, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All of us, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died for his people in striking detail. Hundreds of years before the events ever happened, Isaiah writes down the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, the branch, the son of Jesse, the son of David, the one who bears the sins of all who trust him. But incredibly, This good news continues. The servant king doesn't stay dead, Isaiah says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was, he has put him to grief. But a little twist. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall still see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is the gospel according to Isaiah. You don't have to get to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John to read about this. It's right here, 700 years before it happens. God's servant, King Jesus, would live a perfect life, die the death of judgment that we deserve bearing our sins, and rise from the dead to prolong our days. Prosper us in him. Be counted righteous so that we could become his servants. That we can say, here I am, Lord. Send me. So many people misunderstand the gospel and think, the good news is that when you die, you get to go to heaven, where it's really nice and you get to see your friends and family again. The gospel is so much less about us and more about God. My Old Old Testament professor writes, The gospel is primarily about God's reign through his Messiah that's exerted on behalf of all who trust him. And the treasure of this good news is God himself in Christ. All of that salvation, peace, comfort, and joy is only experienced when you have him. The good news is that we get to be in God's presence again. And you don't have to say, woe is me. 
The king has come to restore us to garden of life with him. Jesus is the servant king who gave his life so we could be free from ultimate judgment. We can have peace in the chaos right now. Comfort in our fear, hope and joy throughout all of our sorrow. And he came to give us righteousness to call us to live for him today. Until we join him in his new creation. Isaiah finishes up in the last two chapters and 65, he says, Behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. He describes it as a place where a wolf and a lamb will graze together in the same pasture, a lion and an ox together. Snakes, serpents will no longer threaten God's people. In the very end in chapter 66, he says, as the new heavens and new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from the new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, month by month, week by week, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares Yahweh the Lord. These are the redeemed people, you are redeemed in Christ to be made to worship Him every month, every week, to come into His throne room, to gather with His people, to sing holy, holy, holy with all of His angels. This is your new identity in Christ. And then you are called, along with Isaiah, to become His servant, to make this good news known through His servant King. Have you prepared the way of your heart to receive him. Becoming a Christian isn't just acknowledging that Jesus is God or writing down on a piece of paper intellectually that he died for sinners so they can go to heaven. You make way in your life that he would reign on the throne of your heart and you would be his servant. Send me. The message of Isaiah that is that you must follow this pattern set by Israel, set by Isaiah and by the servant king. The path to eternal life is through refining judgment. If you follow him, God will bring that refinement into your life as well. When you choose to follow this Messiah, God will burn down the idols in your life. He will strip away all of the alliances you make with the world. That you make to get your own comfort. He'll do whatever it takes in your life to get you utterly dependent upon Him. Less dependent upon the world. Less satisfied with its pleasures. Less confident in its promises. Less convinced by its wisdom. But He's doing it to restore you to His glorious image. To make you into a faithful servant like His Son. To prepare you to flourish in His new creation. And the pattern is always death to the old, birth to the new. To become something new in Christ, you have to experience the painful reality of losing everything else. But God is trustworthy through it all. He is good to walk with you through it all, to preserve you and promise you something far better. Even today. So stop seeking pleasure in this life Seeking to satisfy your own dreams and surrender them all to King Jesus. 
Like Isaiah, he will purify you by his holy atonement and send you on his righteous mission, which will look foolish to the world. The world will think you are dangerous. Can you imagine Isaiah standing there telling them, just trust God. Are you kidding? There's 300,000 soldiers out there ready to kill us. You're telling us to walk into our deaths. Worship him with his people and he will provide for you. If you have seen his glory and have been made pure by the blood of Christ, you're going to do it. You will do it because you are so convinced that that new creation is far better anyway. You are so convinced that becoming a servant to prepare the way for others to receive him is totally worth it. Embrace that refining fire as God's hand brings you to greater trust in his servant king. Prepare the way in your life to be ruled by our suffering servant, King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly, glorious, holy Father, help us to receive this heavy truth with joy and confidence that you are good and you are working for our good. And that you have something far better than this life prepared for us. Make us into your holy servants. Humble servants. Confident servants. With the good news of King Jesus on our lips. God, help us respond humbly. Joyfully. Not to be weighed down by the heaviness of this message. But realizing that Jesus took the burden of that heavy yoke for us that we could follow him with a lighter yoke. All who are weary, poor in spirit, heavy laden, will find rest. Give us rest now in our King Jesus. Amen.